Yeah, it was good timing because I looked at the news today and people are talking about how the green M&M, oh, the green M&M is no longer going to have sexy legs, sexy boots, go-go boots. It's good timing given I'm talking, last night I was talking about the way these ideas are marketed. It's not really good timing at all, though. There's nothing synchronistic or coincidental about it because every day you can see something like this which is why it's such a spiral. It's why it's so pathological. The spiral just gets tighter and tighter, more and more. I would call it an orbit, but it's not really much of an orbit when it's a spiral. An orbit is circular. It, I would say it sucks more and more into its gravitational pull. But yeah, the, the headline... Oh, the green the green M and M's no longer going to be a sexy woman. She's just going to be a woman with sneakers like everybody else. You know, the justification, I guess, is uh, she's a, she's a, a, a stereo. They're stereotyping women for as wearing like uh, feminine go-go boots. Now she's just another M and M. She's just she's just a girl who likes sneakers. And I hesitate to talk about it because that's what they want. The whole idea in changing the green M&M to be less sexy is to get you to talk about it. And that's what people are doing. Um, and it's a, a pretty much daily occurrence to see something like this. So, you know, you don't want to react to it. But it does make me think and it plays into what I was talking about last night, which is that a lot of money goes into this. You know, I mentioned the story about being at a, at a workplace meeting in 2016 where somebody was like, I think that our super androgynous humanoid silhouette shape that says upload profile photo here, I think it's a little too masculine. And how even though we only spent maybe five minutes talking about that, it was still five minutes. Like we were all on hourly wages. I don't know. Maybe there were 10 people involved in the meeting. So, you know, th that's money. Who knows how much money we were paid to discuss that for five minutes. Maybe maybe the company spent 10 or 20 bucks. If you actually calculated it out. But it also derailed the conversation. You know, it's not just that we spent five minutes of paid time discussing whether or not our completely androgynous template photo trying to urge people to upload their own photo. You know, it's not just that we spent a small chunk of money so that 10 people could discuss that for a, a couple of minutes. It's also that it derailed the conversation. But with something like this M&M deal, this M&M deal, a lot of money, millions would have gone into this. You think about all the meetings they had to have, probably salaried, but all the meetings they, that people would have had to make this decision, all the emails, all of the meetings, the sketches, somebody probably had to sketch what the green M&M would look like with sneakers instead of sexy legs and go, 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 go boots, Google boots. She was wearing Google boots. So a lot of money went into just the idea, the thinking about it. And then people had to be paid to change the design, to come up with new images, to implement that in their marketing material. Who knows how much money went into it? 
And then there are newspaper articles about it today. Journalists wrote articles about it today, which is how I know about it. And those journalists were paid. So were the editors. Their supervisor probably had to look at it. Some, you know, there were probably multiple stages of approval just to publish those articles. So just in that alone, between, I don't even know who the parent company is of M&M's, but just that people, I mean, that company spent a substantial amount of money to do this. And then even just the sort of adjacent coverage of it, money went into that. So a lot of money went into this that could have been spent elsewhere. And yeah, maybe the money would have been spent on something equally useless, but it's just funny that the idea is that it's virtuous. We're defeating negative, sexy stereotypes of women by changing the legs and shoes of this green circle with eyelashes. Better get rid of the eyelashes, too. The eyelashes are a bit much, if you ask me, but just a lot of money went into that. And so the, and the idea is just to signal that, hey, we are virtuous. But think about where that money could have gone. You know, if you actually were interested in helping women, you could have donated that money to a charity. And you can say that about anything. I mean, so much money is wasted on everything. You could say that about taxes. Oh, you know, our taxes are going to this. Why aren't they going to that? You know, you could say that about anything. But it is, it's always funny to me to see that because... You know, people are like, oh, look at what they did. I, I don't like it, or I do like it. I think it was a horrible decision. I think it was a great decision. Get away from the, the reaction to it and just say, like, think about the money that went into doing that. And then what's funny about it, too, is the admission of guilt. When a company like that decides to change a character because they feel like it was conveying a negative stereotype, a harmful stereotype of women, it's an admission of guilt, like 20, 25 years ago, whenever it was that they brought out, they rolled out the green M&M, they had her walk out with those beautiful legs, those sexy legs. You know, it means they're admitting that they were wrong when they did that. They were ignorant. Oh, we didn't know better. Who knows what the justification is? But I always like how it involves an admission of guilt. It makes me think of Games Workshop, whoever makes D&D. Whoever is responsible for making Dungeons and Dragons. I don't know these parent companies, okay? I don't know the name. I don't know what the parent company is for M&Ms. I don't know what the parent company is for D&D. I think it might be Games Workshop, though. But how, I think it was during summer 2020, during the pathological hysteria, where all these companies were making changes uh, related to that. How that came out where they're like, we're going to make orcs less evil. We realize that we are communicating negative stereotypes about black people through orcs, which is a funny admission of guilt. That's saying like, oh, yeah, we were actually depicting black people when we made orcs destructive and evil. That's what they're saying. We're going to make them more dynamic and human. They can't just be evil. They can't just be barbarians. We have to give orcs more of a a complex backstory because, oh, they were based on black people, which it's fantasy. That's the funny part about all this, like talking about Boba Fett's ship last night, changing the name of Boba Fett's ship 
not not using the word slave in his ship name anymore. Like, were you referring to something offensive when you did it in the first place? When you named Boba Fett's ship Slave One, were you intending to offend people? Were you referencing the slavery of African-American people? When you were including orcs in all of your tabletop role-playing games, were you intending to caricature black people? Or was that just a fantasy world where this was a, a species of barbaric creatures? You know, it's, it's funny that there's kind of an ad- admission of guilt in that. And then they panic. And they would probably say, oh, no, no, we, we, we weren't caricaturing black people through orcs. We're just worried that somebody might think that. Or they might say, like, oh, it's not even about race. Even though we did this during a time of widespread social panic related to one specific issue. We're just doing it because, hey, we think characters should be multifaceted. We think the different races of creature in Dungeons and Dragons should be multifaceted. That's the reason we're doing it. But there's an admission of guilt built into that. It's like, oh, so you were doing something wrong before. All these decades, you've been doing something horribly wrong. And now you have great judgment. No, they're just trying to fit in. They're trying to keep up. They don't actually care. Of course they don't. That's why it's hard to actually have a a genuine reaction to it. But, you know, it's a daily occurrence. You see this daily. And what's funny about that is it really highlights the genius of Tolkien, the godfather of orcs. Where in Return of the King, there's that part where they're in Mordor, and I think Frodo's unconscious, and Sam is hiding, and he's observing two orcs, or, or Uruk High, in conversation with each other. They're guards. I think they're Uruk High, but basically orcs. And they're in conversation with each other, and he overhears it. And it's the only time in the entire series, the only time in those books, when you actually see the orcs or Uruk High be humanized because he overhears the two guards talking I think they're talking I don't remember the exact lines but it's just a couple lines it's just this brief little snippet of dialogue that Sam overhears where the guards are talking about their shifts I think they're talking about their guard shifts I want to say they they might reference their families or something there's something though where they're talking about something mundane and normal that implies they're just people doing their job too the orcs, the Urukai, they're just doing the, doing what they have to do as well. And what's so great about that, and it, to me it's the genius of Tolkien, is he doesn't draw that out. It's the only time in the entire series that you see that, that you read that. You see, you see what you read, but it's the only time you come across that, and it's enough. It has an impact because you go, oh yeah, they are living beings too, and they're just in a position where they're guards for Sauron, for Sauron, for Sauron. Excuse me, how dare I confuse Sauron and Sauron. But they're just guards working for a bad guy. But there's more going on in their lives. But you only get that tiny little snippet, and that's enough. Your imagination does the rest. They don't need to have some entire chapter devoted to 
and Uruk Hai's family and kids and home life, all you need is that little glimpse to know that, oh, there's more to them. Because we've gotten to a point, though, where we have to show it all. You know, we got into that anti-hero phase that really took off in the 90s. You know, the 80s had a little bit of that building up, but the 90s was the time where, like, Spawn and Image Comics were popular. A lot of movies that were coming out depicted the anti-hero. And the idea behind that, you know, and this was a trend you saw in movies, comic books, just anything, any kind of popular entertainment, was that, oh, the good guy isn't just completely pure and good. He's conflicted. Maybe he used to be a bad guy. That was the story in Spawn. He used to be a government assassin, and he went to hell, and he came back. And he has to live with the fact that he used to be that thing, and he's at war with the people who his old employers, the government, the CIA. So he's this anti-hero. And that just played out in just about every story where it's like the good guy isn't completely good. He's an anti-hero. He's trying to be good. He's doing good things, but he's conflicted. He's complicated. But the same was true for villains. Just like the anti-hero became popular, the sort of anti-villain became popular where Oh, the villain, he's not completely bad. He has a motivation. He has a backstory. He was traumatized. Oh, the, the villain, the reason why he's acting the way he is is because he's traumatized. Oh, hurt people, hurt people. You ever heard of that one? Hurt people, hurt people. That was sort of the idea behind villains that became popular. The good guy's not completely good and the bad guy's not completely bad. And they meet in this gray area. They still end up fulfilling those roles of good guy and bad guy. But you have to consider a lot more. And people also started to popularize the bad guys, too. I know in the last few years, they came out with a Cruella DeVille movie or show. You know, she can't just be Cruella DeVille. Her name is Cruella. Cruella. But she can't just be Cruella DeVille. Basically a witch going after dogs. We got to know why she is the way she is. And we can see this in just the number of stories now that are about bad characters. I mean, they just launched a Boba Fett uh, TV show, I guess it is. The lines between TV show and movie are blurred to me. I don't know what's what. I hear about these things and they seem like movies, but I think they might just be HBO shows. But, uh, you know, more and more we've gotten into that where, like, we have to do an entire series, we have to do an entire movie about the bad guy now, to know his story, to know her story, her story. And I can understand that because we're interested in that. I mean, I'm not saying they shouldn't do that. I'm not saying everything should be a black and white story of good and evil, but some subtlety is lost, too. Like going back to Tolkien, just showing this one little snippet of dialogue where the inhuman guards show that they have mundane lives too. He didn't need to do more than that. Because look, I, I remember it. And at the time, it stood out to me too. I was like, I didn't know that he did this. I didn't know that uh, Tolkien considered that. But he did, and all he had to do is have one little snippet. He didn't need to belabor it. And... Belabor kind of describes the way we deal with everything now. It's probably the way I deal with things. I would say this show is me belaboring everything. But, 
You know, we don't need to belabor that. We can just have one little snippet of dialogue that opens your imagination. It expands your imagination to consider the possibility that orcs and uruk have more going on in their lives that's mundane, that's normal, that's relatable. But we don't need to see all the details of that. We don't need to see them at their home with their baby on their knee. We don't need to see them have an argument with their wife and then go in for their guard duty at Mordor. We just know that that's possible because of this little snippet of dialogue. So there's a subtlety to it. We don't need to over-explain everything. We don't need to show it all. Because it turns out our imaginations are incredibly powerful. I've mentioned this before, but when you're reading a book, it's interesting. When some books don't really describe a character in substance, they don't describe what they actually look like, your brain will fill in details even outside of that. For whatever reason, a character can be introduced in a book And it might not tell you his hair color. It might not tell you his skin color. It might not tell you if he's fat, short, skinny, tall. But your brain generates an image of that character, which is really interesting. You can even see their face in many cases. And there's some books where it'll introduce a character and it doesn't actually describe them until later. And by the time it describes them, you've already generated an image of them in your head. And you kind of go, that's not what I was imagining. Now I have to deal with that. And sometimes your brain will actually still see them the way you initially imagined them. There was some book I was reading, might have been Rob Roy or one of those, it was about a Scottish character, and it wasn't until way later in the book that they described the character as having long red hair, long ginger hair. And up until that point, I hadn't, I hadn't considered that. And I had to think, I had to kind of reconcile it. I had to be like, oh, they just described the character differently than I was imagining him. And so subtlety goes a long way. Just one little snippet of an idea goes a long way. But we've reached a point where we have to make it all completely clear. We have to explain it all. And then we have to change it. If we think that a a fictional character, if we think a fictional name, if we think a fantasy world could possibly be compared to our real world in a way that uh, gives some kind of negative, um, that implies something negative about real people, we have to change it. We have to make this bold statement. It's just, it's part of the spiral. We spiral deeper and deeper. Subtlety is lost. And, you know, speaking of subtlety, I was listening to a show where a guy who was writing a kind of a motivational book was talking about that process. This is a few months ago. And he was mentioning how his stories about a guy, a developmentally disabled guy who overcomes that. And he was saying as part of the story, this character gets bullied, bullied. And at one point, the bullies target him and call him a retard, a retard. And how he said when his editors read that, when the publisher read that, they said, oh, you can't say that. You can't say retard. And he had to explain to them, he had to, he had to say to them, don't you realize those are the bad guys calling him a retard? The whole point is that the bad guys, the bullies, are calling him names. Because how do you, 
how do you describe how do you outline that somebody is the antagonist if they don't do bad things it's like if you're rewriting deliverance oh those guys can't rape those guys the rednecks don't you realize rape is bad the bad guys we can't let them rape the good guys because rape is bad well that's what makes them bad guys that's what makes them villains that's what makes them antagonists so this guy writing his book where the bullies call the lead character a retard, it's not the good guy going around calling people retards and getting a pat on the back for it. It's not him going around calling people retards while being virtuous. The whole idea is the, pe- the people who aren't behaving virtuously are calling the main character a retard because they're the bad guys, at least in that scene. You could probably explain why the bullies are the way they are. You could probably have a snippet of dialogue just like in Return of the King where the bullies have a conversation that shows that they have mundane concerns too and they are human. You could do that. But for the sake of this scene, they're calling the developmentally disabled lead character a retard because they are the bad guys in that interaction. And so he had to explain that to his publishers and they understood amazingly these days the publishers understood that oh okay i get it they're bullying him and so they're going to use words that we don't like and so they ultimately allowed it but the fact that that conversation even had to take place the fact that that nuance was lost the, the fact that the response was automatic to say oh you can't say that you can't say that it's a rule they know that there's a rule oh you're not supposed to say retard But how do you depict negative, even if the characters aren't bad, how do you depict negative behavior if you can't have those characters do something bad? Oh, the bad guy killed somebody. Well, you're not allowed to kill people. There's a law. There's a law against killing people. Can't have the bad guy kill people. But they wouldn't say that. That's what's funny about that too, though is if the characters in that guy's book killed somebody, it would be readily understood. Even though killing somebody is substantially and obviously worse than calling them a retard, we're so focused on language. The spiral is so focused on words and language that you have this automatic response when you see the word retard, where you say, oh, can't say that. We are such hall monitors when it comes to language. That even somebody who should know better, who's in a creative field, a field that's based on imagination, they have this automatic response because they know that rule. They were taught there's a rule that you can't use that word, but they lack the imagination. They lack the nuance to recognize that. That should be something that you recognize immediately and automatically. You shouldn't automatically just dismiss that. I could understand if it was completely over the top. Like, I could understand if you're reading that part and you're like, okay, it seems like the the writer is getting off. It seems like the writer is actually getting off by like what the bull, getting off on what the bullies are doing. It seems like they are the one indulging in, in the bullies activities. But again, that would be nuance. That would require something deeper than just can't say that. 
it's a good, you know, I don't care about this guy's book. I was just, it was an interesting point though, because he was talking about that. And I was just like, yeah, that's the world we live in. Can't say that. When it's like, don't you understand the whole point of them saying that? But that shows you there's this sort of dissonance between what we want from stories, too, where on one hand, we want to follow these new social rules that tell us what we can and can't say, what we can and can't depict. But then we also seek out, but why are the bullies the way they are? Like, we want things to be multidimensional, but yet we have this one-dimensional response to everything. But who's the audience? Like I was saying last night, who's even the audience for this stuff? Like thinking about the green M&M, the green M&M, the green circle that's supposed to depict candy, personified candy, anthropomorphic candy. You know, who's the audience when they say, hey, you know, let's let's take out the sexy stereotype. Let's get rid of that sexy stereotype because girls can wear sneakers, too. I remember when the green M&M came out, there were people who were like, it's creepy. When she acted sexy, I do remember people saying, oh, it's creepy that she acts that way. They didn't care about her Google boots. Her Google boots. They didn't care about that. They were just like, it's creepy that they're making an M&M act sexy. But is there anybody out there who cared enough? Is there anybody out there who is like, I'm not going to buy M&Ms anymore. You know what? I'm not. I'm just not. I don't want to ever buy another bag of M&Ms again. Oh, does this uh, does this birthday cake have M&Ms cooked into it? Yeah, you know, because of that green M&M depicting a negative sexy stereotype which why is that even negative first of all why is a sexy stereotype negative it's not but we won't even get into that here we don't even need to get into that because i thought sexy was okay i thought sexy was okay but um you know, is there anybody out there? Because like M&Ms are one of those things. I mean, this is going to be a water is wet statement, but M&Ms are one of those things that you either like or you don't. If you're the type of person who sees M&Ms and thinks, I just got to eat handfuls of those. I mean, I personally love M&Ms. One of the best candies. Like if I buy a bag of M&Ms, I'm going to eat the whole bag. If something has M&Ms in it, there's a good chance that I'm happy about it. So somebody either likes M&Ms or they don't. And there's very little that M&M's can do or not do. There's very little that that company can do or not do that will change that. They are such a, a core part of our candy culture. They're such a core part of our culture that people know whether they like them or not. They know if they're going to eat M&M's or not. They know if that's going to be something that they see in the candy aisle and go, I'm going to buy that. I'm going to buy it. I feel like having M&M's. They don't consider the advertising. You know, unless you have some hippie family who won't let you eat M&M's, you're going to eat M&M's at an early age, and you're going to know right away whether you like them or not. So it's funny to me that even that any of this is even considered, and it shows you what little impact this stuff has on a brand that, that, that's that large, on a product that, that's that big. 
and popular. You know, it's probably going to make little to no difference in any measurable way whether or not the green M&M is sexy in its advertising or not. But it always blows my mind because there are people out there who applaud it. There are people out there who see something like that and say, like, oh, great decision. That's, that, that was the right decision, M&Ms. I don't know if that would change whether or not they're going to eat them. And then it's funny, too, that it's something that's not good for you. It's something that contributes to people's health issues, even in a small way. Don't need to go there. But it makes you think. It gets you talking, which is what I'm doing. I'm doing what they want, which is talking about it. That's why they do it. It's not because they're virtuous. It's because they want you to talk about it. It's why the companies change logos. It's why they make any marketing. It's why they change any of their marketing materials. It's to get you to notice. It's to get you to talk about it. Like I noticed, I've seen some Burger King trash. I've seen Burger King litter. And I noticed they're using the old logo again. They're using, because at some point, probably 20 years ago, Burger King changed to this modern logo which is exactly like the car example I always use. I always use the example of car design, where cars go from being more round. Oh, the cars are round. Oh, look at those round cars. To squaring them off, and it's like, oh my God, can you believe it? This The new version of the Jeep is square. Oh my God, the, the new version of the Jeep is square. And you do that for 10 years and then you make it round again and people are like oh my god can you believe this i, I really li- you know i really like that new jeep design when really it's just this ping pong back and forth contrast and it's funny too cuz the burger king logo the old logo that they're now using again the old logo that's now the new logo it's very squared off it's more of a square shape whereas for years they were using this rounded shape this is how you know I'm insane. Even though the Burger King logo used to be square, now it's rounded, and then and then it's now it's square again. This is how you know you're insane. But it's funny how it follows those same rules, and how by reintroducing the old logo, it gives people this sense of nostalgia. Oh, it reminds me of when I was a kid, and I used to go to Burger King with my grandpa and get the Whopper. Makes me want to go there. And it's to get you talking about it. It's to get you to notice it. But it's yet another example. You know, Burger King, there's nothing virtue. Fortunately, they're not signaling anything. Fortunately, Burger King is not signaling anything when they change their logo. But it's interesting how so many of these creative decisions, and I don't think they're creative at all, but how these marketing decisions these days do involve some sort of signal. You can't just say, oh, hey, you know, the green M&M, she was kind of silly. It was kind of silly to make the green M&M sexy. It was kind of silly to give her Google boots. And then they stopped doing that. It has to be an announcement. It has to be bold. It has to be a statement. And that plays into all this. You can't just do something and have it not be a statement. You can't just start giving the orcs a more dynamic backstory. You have to make a statement that we are changing the way that we've presented orcs. 
We realize that the way that we've presented orcs in the game Dungeons and Dragons, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons for the last 50 years, has contributed to negative stereotypes about entire groups of people. And as a result, orcs are going to be a lot nicer. They're not going to be quite as bad. They're not going to be as villainous. It has to be a signal. You have to boost that signal. Let people know. But there will be another example tomorrow, and hopefully I won't be talking about this every day. But uh, it's good timing because it's on my mind. It relates to marketing. It relates to this signaling. And uh, the conversation, though, it's very muddled. It's very confused. It's pathological. It's a spiral. And the tighter that spiral gets, the more gets sucked into it. There's a gravitational pull to it. This is what we have to do. As the spiral gets tighter, the the motivation to act in accordance with that pathology becomes stronger. But there has to be a breaking point to that. There has to be a, a point where the spiral unravels or just becomes a tight knot that doesn't go anywhere. And that's what I'm curious to observe. That's what I'm actually paying attention to now. Is when does it stop spiraling? When does it loosen up again? When do things stop getting sucked into that gravitational pull? It's not happening yet. But it's going to happen. And people shouldn't be applauded for that either. The company who doesn't do that shouldn't necessarily be applauded either. But it can't keep going. There'll reach a point where the spiral can't get any tighter. There'll reach a point where you just can't do these things anymore. Because we've already gone far far enough. Who knew? Who knew that the green changing the green M&M would get me thinking? But I was already thinking about it. This land is mine. God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can